Well, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. It's great to have you all with us this afternoon. It's a beautiful day here in Charleston. I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, but it's sun shining here and uh, probably the low 70s. So it's a, it's a beautiful day here in Charleston, and we trust that um, it will be a profitable Bible study as we begin today. Let's pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, today we're beginning our study of Philippians in chapter 1. We're going to just read through the first few verses, um, chapters 1, uh, verses 12 through. We'll go ahead and read through verse 18 today. Um, it says 12 through 14 on your screen, but we're going to um, see if we can get a little further than that today, but we'll see. But let's go ahead and read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Again, still part of Paul's introduction uh, to this letter as he is writing to the Philippians. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We said that one of the reasons Paul wrote this epistle to the Philippians was because he was thanking them. Paul had been imprisoned in Rome for some time, and many of the churches, many of his fellow Christians had completely forgotten him. It was a very lonely time for Paul. We said that Paul had been a very active individual. He had traveled uh, throughout a greater portion of the ancient world. Uh, he had been a man who had always been free to preach the gospel and to share the good news of God in Christ, and now all of a sudden he found his wings clipped, and he's imprisoned. And to make matters worse, so many people had forgotten him, even people with whom he had shared the good news, whose lives had been changed by the gospel, they had forgotten Paul. But the Philippian church had not forgotten Paul. In fact, they had been filled with anxiety about what was happening with him. They had heard rumors that he had been taken off to Rome, and there he had been imprisoned, but they hadn't heard anything. We have to remember that in that day, there was no telephone system. Uh, there was no normal um, way to send a letter. There was certainly no email or any kind of instant communication the way we have it today. News traveled very slowly, and so they were anxious for any word from Paul. And when they finally received this letter, uh, they were very anxious to hear how he was doing, and that's what Paul is talking about. He knew that they were anxious to hear. They had sent a gift to him to help alleviate his suffering, and so he was writing to thank them for this, and he fills them in on what's been going on in his life during this time of incarceration. And that's what we see happening here in verses 12 through 14. He acknowledges the fact that he's been through a difficult time, but he also acknowledges the fact that this difficult time has nevertheless been used by God. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He speaks, for example, of his incarceration and his imprisonment but an imprisonment that had been used by God. We have to ask ourselves the question, how Paul must have felt? You know, sometimes we think of these great heroes of the faith as though they are larger-than-life figures. They're two-dimensional figures in stained-glass windows. We have a hard time remembering that they were flesh and blood. I suspect that this time of incarceration, even though Paul put a positive spin on it and recognized that God was work at work in spite of it, Paul must have been very frustrated at this point in his life. Uh, we all have plans for our lives, and sometimes when those plans are derailed, it can be very discouraging. Paul, as I said, had traveled throughout much of what we would call the Middle East today. He had traveled through ancient Syria, 
He'd gone down to the island of Crete. He'd been to Turkey. He'd been through the greater portion of Greece to Philippi and Ephesus and many of the great cities of the ancient world. But Paul was by no means finished. He still had plans, and he indicates this in his other letters, that he had plans to visit Spain, to go into Western Europe, even further than where he had gone. He had great plans. Paul took the Great Commission seriously. Jesus had said to his disciples, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Well, that is exactly what Paul was going to do. He was Christ's man, and he was going to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And yet, even though that was his plan, and by the way, it was a wonderful plan. It was certainly in accord with God's great commission. Nevertheless, that's not exactly what happened to Paul. What happened to him was something very different and very discouraging. You can read about it in the latter chapters of Acts. Uh, Paul had determined, after his third missionary journey, uh, to travel off to Jerusalem. He was going to carry the gospel to Jerusalem. Uh, of course, the gospel was already there. It's really where Christianity began in Jerusalem. But Paul knew that there was a division in the church that existed between those who were Jewish Christians and those who were Gentile Christians. And so he had been collecting what he called the Jerusalem Fund. It was a collection of money from the Gentile churches that he was going to deliver to the believers in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was a very poor church. It was a persecuted church. The people were beleaguered. And so this was going to be for their relief. And Paul thought this would be a great opportunity to bring the church together, Jewish and Gentile believers. Because when he presented this large sum of money to the Jerusalem church, they would ask, where did you get it? And he would have said, it's from your brothers and sisters. And the Jerusalem Christians would have asked, what brothers and sisters? And Paul would have said, your brothers and sisters in places like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and elsewhere. So Paul went to Jerusalem with the best of intent. He wanted to bring the church together. He wanted there to be unity in Christ, no more division. But when he arrived in Jerusalem, he found himself falsely accused. He was accused of having taken a Gentile into the temple precincts, which was a violation of the law. It was actually punishable by death. Now, Paul had not actually done that, but that was the charge that was brought against him. And the result was that a riot erupted, and Paul almost found himself torn limb from limb. Had it not been for the timely intervention of Roman troops, Paul probably would have been lynched right there on the spot. But instead, he found himself arrested, taken really into protective custody. But there were so many people that were opposed to Paul, opposed to what he had done elsewhere in the world, opposed to the message that he was proclaiming that there was only one way to salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There were so many people that were angry about that in Jerusalem that Paul actually became the subject of an assassination plot. The Roman authorities, because Paul was a Roman citizen, determined that he could not stay in Jerusalem for fear of his life. And so they transported him up the coast to a place called Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've actually been to that place. Now, as a Roman citizen, Paul was entitled to a timely trial. Many of our systems of justice today in the United Kingdom and here in the United States are based upon the Roman system of a timely trial. And Paul expected a timely trial. But what actually happened was that he found himself imprisoned for two years in Caesarea Maritima. The first governor there didn't quite know what to do with Paul. He was intrigued by Paul, but he was not interested in having Paul released. He was replaced, and the second governor came in. The second governor was not accustomed to the ways of Judea. He didn't really understand all of the charges that were brought against Paul because they were of a religious nature. And so Paul found himself languishing there in prison in Caesarea Maritima for two years. Now remember, Paul was this active man. He had plans to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He knew that there were people who were perishing, and he was eager to get the good news out to them. We said that he had been so strategic. He had worked hard to focus on the great cities of the ancient world so that the gospel would get out to as many people as quickly as possible. And here he is, locked away for two years, not able to do anything. How disappointing that must have been. And when he finally was brought to trial, it was a prolonged trial. 
It suddenly occurred to Paul that he was not going to get any justice whatsoever. And maybe because he was a little frustrated, maybe because he was a little eager to get back on the road, he did what every Roman citizen had a right to do. He appealed to Caesar, to the emperor himself. Well, Paul was put on a ship and sent off, and you know the story, he was eventually shipwrecked as well, shipwrecked on Malta. When he finally did arrive in Rome in Acts chapter 28, we're told that he was imprisoned. It's this imprisonment that we're reading about here in Philippians. The best laid plans of mice and men. Paul had the best of intentions. He wanted to do what Christ had commanded to do, but life and circumstances interrupted. Has that ever happened to you? You have plans, you have hopes, you have dreams, and lo and behold, you find that life or circumstances interrupt. Maybe it's something having to do with your health. Maybe it's something that has to do with your circumstances or has to do with your finances. Whatever it may be, we can oftentimes find ourselves very discouraged in moments like this. And it raises the question, why does God allow this sort of thing to happen to us? Why does God allow his saints to suffer? Because Paul was suffering there in Rome. There was a mental agony in addition to the physical agony that he had to endure as a prisoner, chained up like an animal. Have you ever wondered that, why God allows suffering? Some people would argue that this is actually the greatest challenge to the Christian faith, the idea of a good God who allows people, innocent people, to suffer. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in the introduction to that book, actually chapter two, this is what Lewis says. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, it appears that God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. Why does God allow suffering, disappointment, discouragement to come into our lives? Well, what I want to say to you today is that there are answers to these questions, but there are not pat answers. Suffering is indeed a great mystery. And one of the things that you'll discover as you read through the Bible is that the Scripture's primary concern is not really with why God allows suffering, but rather what God is doing in the midst of suffering. The Bible assumes that God may have good reasons for allowing people to experience suffering and difficulty in their lives. We simply may not know what they are. We have to recognize that we are creatures. We are finite. We are here for a time, for a season. God, on the other hand, is infinite. He sees the entire picture, the whole sweep of history from start to finish. We see through a glass darkly, as Paul himself once said. And therefore, we have to acknowledge the fact that, yes, there may be good reasons why God allows suffering to come into our lives, but we don't know what they are. And that's why the Bible's primary concern and Paul's primary concern here in Philippians is not that suffering occurs, but what is God doing in the midst of that suffering? And Paul believes that God is in the process of redeeming it. Let me tell you something about the Christian life. We all suffer. I've sometimes said that we are all in one of three places. I think about... Jesus and his disciples out on that Sea of Galilee when they were caught in the storm. Well, you know, we're all in storms. In fact, we're in one of three places. We're either in a storm right now in our lives, we've just come out of a storm, or we're about to head into a storm. But the point is that none of us avoids the storms of life. I mentioned this two weeks ago in the sermon. The book of Job says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Now, some might say, well, suffering occurs in human life because of the fall. And that may be true. 
But again, that is a bit of a pat answer to say, well, we suffer because of the fall. That doesn't answer the question why some people suffer more than other people. Simply acknowledges the fact that suffering occurs, but it doesn't explain to us why some people suffer more than other people. So again, I want you to understand the Bible's primary concern is not with why suffering occurs, but what God is doing in the midst of it. And the scriptures are clear, whenever a believer suffers, and this is very important, we all suffer, but the Christian suffers for a purpose. If you belong to Christ, you suffer for a purpose. We all suffer. The Christian suffers for no purpose. The Christian suffers for a purpose. God is in the process of using even this for our good. So what are the ways in which God can use suffering for our good? Well, one means is by correcting us. Sometimes suffering is allowed to come into our lives because we have gotten off track. And this is the means of reproving us. This is the means of disciplining us. Not so much punishing, but building us up. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn back to the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs is not a hard book to find. Uh, if you go to the center of your Bible, close your Bible and open it to the center, chances are it's going to fall in Psalms or Proverbs. If it falls open to Psalms, turn to the right and you're going to hit Proverbs. Easy way to get to the book of Proverbs or the book of Psalms. So Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 Here's what the author says. He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Responsible parents understand that discipline is a part of raising children. It's not intended to inflict pain or, or punishment on the people so much as it is intended to what? To shape them, to hone them, to transform them into the kind of men and women that are benefits, that are, are beneficial in their lives for society. Well, that is what the author of Proverbs is saying. He said, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Yes, it can be painful, but it is intended for our correction. If you're suffering in your life, you might want to ask the question, what is God doing in the midst of this? It doesn't necessarily mean that you are suffering because you've done something wrong, although this may be the case. And if it is, you have to ask yourself, what does God want to teach me in the midst of this? So some of the suffering that comes into our lives, God uses for corrective purposes. But it's not just for corrective purposes. Sometimes God uses this for constructive purposes, really to transform us ever more into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate good. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. The ultimate good that you and I can experience is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. To be Christ-like is the greatest thing anybody can experience. Now, the way Paul describes this is interesting. He says, we are transformed by our faith into the image of Jesus Christ. I've always depicted it this way. It's like God taking one of those cookie cutters or one of those cutters that sometimes people use when they play with Play-Doh, children play with Play-Doh. And you know what it is, you've got the cookie dough or you've got the Play-Doh and you take that picture, that, that, that cookie cutter. It's an image of whatever. Maybe it's an image of a dog or a, a dragon or something. And you press that down onto the dough. And you lift it up, and there is this perfect imprint. But then what do you have to do? You have to peel away all of that excess around the edges. When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, God implants within us the image of his son. Because of Christ's death upon the cross, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our fallenness. He doesn't see our sin. Instead, he sees the image of his own son. He's pleased with us because what he sees staring back at him is his own reflection. But sometimes there's a lot of that excess stuff around the edges that God has to peel away to make us ever more Christ-like. And that can be a painful process. We talked about it last week. It's a process of pruning that we might be more fruitful. Peter talks about this 
in his epistle. Uh, turn, if you will, to the right to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And here's how Peter describes it. It's very similar to what we had in that passage from Proverbs. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Paul, Peter acknowledges the fact that, yes, we are sometimes grieved. He speaks of various trials. But why? He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that the trials that we go through are a means of testing. Now, the testing that he's talking about here is not a testing to see if we're going to pass or fail. It's, it's the way steel is tempered or tested in a fire. If you go to some portions of the Middle East, if you go to Istanbul, for example, to the Great Bazaar, you will see people that are there working with metal. And they're making little pieces of jewelry out of silver. Now, the way they used to do this is they would get coins from Western tourists. And they would get these coins, and they normally had a small, primitive little furnace. And there would be a flame, and there would be molten silver in that little furnace. And what they would do is they would take these coins, and they would drop the coins in and melt them down. Now, the more heat that was applied, the more the impurities in the metal. You know that most coins today are not pure silver. They contain all kinds of different elements. And so you need to get rid of those different elements, and you need to have just pure silver in order to make the jewelry. And so what happens is the coins get plopped down into the furnace, heat is applied, they're melted down, and as more heat is applied, the impurities begin to float to the surface. This is called dross. And then what the silversmith does is he takes an instrument and he scrapes that dross off the top. It's worthless and he disposes of it. And then he applies more heat. And as he applies more heat, more dross flows to the surface. And he does this over and over again until the metal is purified. Now, the question is this, how does the silversmith know that the metal is pure? He knows when he can look into the pot and he sees his own reflection staring back at him as though in a mirror. That is what God wants to do with our lives. He wants to be able to peer into our lives and see his own reflection staring back at him as though in a mirror. And in order for that to happen, sometimes God has to apply the heat to do away with all of those impurities, to get away get rid of all of the draw so that we come through purified. So Peter says, sometimes God allows suffering to come into our lives in order to correct us. Sometimes it's in order to build us up, to construct us, to transform us into the image of Christ. But there are other times when God simply allows suffering to come into our lives because we belong to him and our lives are given over to him, and it's by suffering that we glorify I suppose that the most powerful example of this is in John's gospel. This is a rather shocking story, but it's in John chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 1. Jesus and his disciples were passing along the road one day, and they saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples, verse 2, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that was the common belief in first century Judaism, that if a person was suffering with any kind of physical malady, it was probably because they had done something wrong or their parents had done something wrong, and the sins of the parents were being, well, punished on the, on the child, passed on to the child. But if suffering was occurring, the common belief in first century Judaism was that somebody had done something wrong, either you had done something wrong or somebody in your family tree had done something wrong, and this was retribution. And so as Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples, they see a man who had been blind, blind from birth. And they're wrestling with this theological question. And so they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now look at Jesus' response. It's very interesting. 
not what we would expect. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's interesting, isn't it? This man was born blind, not because he had done anything wrong or his parents had done anything wrong. He was born blind that Jesus might come along the road that day and open his eyes, and he might bear witness then to the one who does all things well. As I said, we are all in one of three places. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter how much education you have or how much money you possess. We are all in one of three places. We are either in a storm, we've just come out of a storm, or we're heading into a storm. The only question is, what is God doing in the midst of the storms of our lives? If you're a Christian, you can rest assured that God is so transforming you down here that you will be able one day to fit in up there. He may be using the suffering for correction. He may be using it to build you up into the full stature of Christ. He may be using it simply that he might be glorified because you belong to him. But one thing is for certain, it is all for good. And that's what Paul is acknowledging here in Philippians. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served for a good. It has served to advance the cause of the gospel. Oh, it's true, Paul says, I'm chained. I'm chained up like a common criminal. But the gospel is not chained. Look at what he says here. He says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's translated imperial guard here. In the original text, it is the praetoria. The praetorium guard were not just common jailers. They were the shock troops of the Roman Empire. They were the bodyguards of the emperor. These were the men that were close to the most powerful figure on earth. And Paul was chained to one of them. And he used this opportunity to share the gospel. I have a friend who says that the only difference between a catastrophe and an opportunity is a matter of attitude. Think about that. The only difference between a catastrophe and an opportunity is a matter of attitude. We might look at Paul's imprisonment and think, well, this is a tragedy. This is a catastrophe. This man who'd been so active in sharing the gospel, he wanted the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth, and here he is, chained like a prisoner to a guard. But Paul says God's ways are mysterious. Here he was, trained to a, chained to a praetorian guard. He shares the gospel with the guard. The guard shares it with others, and he says the gospel has gone throughout the entire praetorium guard. Now, as these soldiers were sent out to other places, as they came to faith, they would be taking that faith with them. The opportunity to share the gospel would be multiplied. And who knows, perhaps the gospel was even shared with the emperor himself. You've all heard the Latin phrase, carpe diem, it's loosely translated, seize the day. That is exactly what Paul did. He took a catastrophe, or what could have been a catastrophe, and he seized it. He seized the moment, seized the day, and used it as an opportunity to share the good news. My friends, that's one of the things that we have to be as Christians. We have to be proactive. We don't have to wait for opportunities to come to us. We can seize the opportunities. Even when it seems as though we're not able to do the things that we wanted to do, nevertheless, every day is filled with opportunities. That's one of my prayers every day. Lord, give me the opportunities. Give me the, the grace to see the opportunities that are before me and give me the courage to seize them, to seize them for the sake of Christ. And because Paul did that, the gospel did go throughout the entire palace. And he says that was a wonderful thing, not only for him, but he says it was a great encouragement to others. Look at what he says in verse 14. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. When they looked at Paul and they saw what he did, when they saw his suffering, 
you know, that could be a great encouragement. I, I would suggest to you that if you've never done so, read biographies of great Christian heroes. You know, it's wonderful to watch TV and, and watch Netflix and all of the shows that are there, but there are a few things that are going to be more profitable to you, aside from reading the scriptures, than reading the stories of real-life men and women who have done great things for Christ. Most of the time, what you'll discover is that they were not great people in and of themselves. They were simply common people through whom Christ did great things. I sometimes say that God doesn't always call the qualified, but he always qualifies the called. And this was a huge encouragement, Paul says, to others. Billy Graham once said, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. And that is exactly the way it was for Paul. He was a brave man. He endured his suffering, confident that God was at work, even in the bleakest of circumstances. And that was a huge encouragement to others. Isn't that the kind of life you want to live as a follower of Jesus Christ? It's the kind of life that Paul wants us to live. And it was the kind of life that he lived. The question we have to ask ourselves is not, will suffering come into our lives? Sooner or later, it comes to us all, in varying degrees to be sure, but it comes to us all. And it will change you. The only question is, how? How will it change you? Will it sweeten your witness, make you a more effective witness, or will it sour your witness? Will you become embittered and angry and frustrated with God? Or will you recognize that He is at work even in the darkest of days? There's a wonderful old hymn written by George Stebbins that I think sums up Paul's attitude whether he was free to go out and preach the gospel or chained like an animal there in Rome. I think this sums up exactly how Paul felt about his life in Christ. The hymn goes this way, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, all power, surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. That should be the prayer of every Christian heart. Have thine own way, Lord. So often when we say thy will be done, what we really mean is my will be done. Paul gave himself wholly and completely over to Jesus Christ. And God took him and used him in a mighty way, and the world was never the same again. Have thine own way. Now, again, all of this is wonderful, but it doesn't mean that Paul didn't have difficulty. Just because he was able to say, have thine own way, Lord, just because he's going on to say, you know, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain does not mean that Paul was any less human than the rest of us, and he didn't get frustrated. And one of the really tragic things about what he says here in Philippians chapter 1 is that much of the difficulty that he was facing was coming not from the secular world, but he even admits here that many of the difficulties he was facing was coming from the church. We don't think of it that way often, do we? When we think about suffering for Christ or facing difficulty for Christ or opposition because of Christ, we generally think that that opposition, that difficulty, that frustration is going to come from out there in the world because that's what we battle against. But Paul indicates here that some of the difficulty that he faced was actually coming from brothers 
sisters in Christ. Look at what he says. He said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul is acknowledging the fact that there are those who are Christians who are nevertheless troublemakers. Troublemakers. You know, sometimes we can get nostalgic. You ever hear people talk about the good old days? Oh, I long for the good old days. Well, if you think about it, sometimes the good old days weren't all that good. We have a tendency to romanticize the past, don't we? You watch a movie like Gone with the Wind and you think, oh, those antebellum years, they were so wonderful. All those ladies with their fans and their crinoline and those men in those wonderful starched collars and, and their frock coats and their polished uniforms and so forth. And we think, oh, I would have liked to have lived in a world like that, in a world of grace and beauty. Sometimes we forget that the 1850s, the 1840s, the 1860s, that, that period that is depicted in that movie, that was a time when there was no indoor plumbing. The average lifespan was about 40 years. Down here in South Carolina, there was no such thing as air conditioning. Mothers died in childbirth. Children oftentimes did not make it beyond the age of 10, dying of simple childhood diseases like measles, mumps, and chicken pox. Yeah, sometimes we have a tendency to look back on the past and think the good old days, but if we're honest, we'd have to admit that the good old days weren't all that good. In some respects, they weren't really any better or any worse than they are today. There is a danger, my friends, in nostalgia, and this is especially true when it comes to the church. You know, sometimes when we look back at the early church, those early and heady days of the Christian movement, we think, oh, that's what we need to be like. The church has become so complicated and the church has become so large. Wouldn't it be wonderful to get back to the basics, back to the sources, back to the way it was in those early days? There are some denominations that feel that the whole point of the Christian life is to live a life similar to the one lived by the apostles. But let me tell you something, that is an oversimplification. Paul's words here in Philippians remind us that the early church was no more perfect than the church of today. You think about it, in Acts chapter 5, the same church that, con that contained Peter and James and John, the great apostles in those heady days following Pentecost, also contained Ananias and Sapphira. Or how about the Corinthian church? I sometimes describe the Corinthian church as Paul's problem child. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn back, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's something very illustrative here. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Corinth was one of the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world, a great center of trade and commerce. It was a very important church, and Paul had a heart for these people. He wrote two letters that we know of to the Corinthian church. There may have been others. But here's how he describes the Corinthian church, beginning at verse 1. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We said that word sanctified means made holy. So he's saying, to the church of God in Corinth, which has been made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He's calling the Corinthian saints in the same way that he called the Philippians saints. He goes on to say in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him. He says this is a church that has been made holy. It's a church that is filled with saints. It is a church that is enriched in knowledge, in speech. He says in verse 7, you lack no spiritual gift. Now you think about it, that is an extraordinary church. Church filled with saints, a church that has been sanctified, a church that is enriched with speech and knowledge, a church that is lacking in no spiritual gift. 
You read those verses and you think that church in Corinth is a model church. It's the perfect church. But turn just a few pages in your Bible and you get a real picture of this church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about divisions in the church. Rancor, backbiting, infighting, complaining, jealousy, strife. It's hardly a perfect church. You turn even further into chapter 5, Paul talks about sexual immorality that is defiling the church. He says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Hardly a model church. You turn to chapter 6, and Paul is concerned about lawsuits among believers. They're taking each other to court. See, the early church was no different than the churches today. Don't we face those same things today? Well, Paul was facing them there in Philippians. He was there imprisoned in Rome, and he was talking about the fact that here he was in prison, and there were people out there who were making trouble for him. And the trouble, as I said, was not coming from unbelievers, but from believers. These people were not anti-Christ. They were anti-Paul. He doesn't deny the fact that they're preaching Christ. They are preaching Christ, but he says they're doing it out of envy and rivalry. This may come as a shock to some of you, but do you know that Christians can be jealous and envious? Are you aware of the fact that Christians are not necessarily perfect people? Are you aware of the fact that there's no such thing as a perfect congregation? No, I'd like to think that St. Philip's is about as close to it as you could possibly get, but let's be honest, there is no such thing as a perfect church. I'm reminded of something Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said. Spurgeon was the great English preacher, Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. Thousands would come out to hear this man preach in a day before amplification. And he would go on for hours, and people would just be awestruck, enthralled. Even the British prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, who was not a Christian, was nevertheless drawn to the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was an extraordinary individual. But one day as he was standing in the receiving line, a husband and wife came up to him, and they said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, we have been sitting under your preaching for many years, and we are grateful, grateful for your ministry. They said, but we have discovered that there are actually sinners in this congregation, and we want you to know that we can no longer stay here in this mixed company, and therefore we are going to go off and find a more perfect church. And Spurgeon, with greater courage than most preachers today have, said to them, well, when you find this perfect church, will you do me a favor? And they said, yes. And Spurgeon said, well, don't join it. And they said, why? He said, because if you join it, you'll ruin it. See, there is no such thing as the perfect church. Why? Because there's no such thing as perfect people. Paul's troubles in Rome were being caused by believers who were jealous of him, envious of him. It's not surprising. Paul was one of the great theological minds. We would say he was the greatest theological mind after Jesus. Paul's letters are studied today. They've been studied for 2,000 years. You can study them and never be exhaustive of all of the things that you will discover. It's like mining for gems. You'll keep finding one after the other. This is a living word. It, it speaks to us across time and space. And furthermore, Paul was such a powerful witness. He was used by God in a mighty way. Whole communities were transformed. It's not surprising that people became jealous and envious of him. They were jealous and envious of Jesus. Truth be known, that's the whole reason why the scribes and the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus. It was because they were filled with jealousy. He had not been to any of their rabbinical academies. He'd never been formally licensed to preach. And when Jesus talked, he spoke as one having authority, and people were drawn to him as moths to a flame. They were willing to forsake the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and follow after Jesus, and they were filled with jealousy, envy, and they wanted to do nothing more than to put him to death. It existed in the early church, my friends, you need to understand that it will exist in the church today. 
don't be surprised when Christians or your fellow parishioners disappoint you or let you down or hurt your feelings. Rivalry, jealousy, envy, these things exist in every age and in every church. Sometimes it even exists between churches. You know how this works. There's sometimes rivalry and competition between various Christian denominations. Sometimes congregations of the same denomination compete with each other. This is particularly true, I think, in American culture, where we do have a tendency to be competitive people. Sometimes not just competitive, but even pugnacious people. You know, there are some people that are just spoiling for a fight, no matter what. They just like to go out there. They're never happy unless they are engaged in some sort of controversy or competition or debate. Paul was acknowledging the fact that this existed here in Philippi and in Rome. Now, I want you to understand differences are not the same thing as divisions. Paul was acknowledging the fact that there were divisions in the church, but he wasn't complaining about differences. We need to understand that there will always be differences. We don't all have to be the same denomination, for example. Some people are more attracted to a Baptist way of worship. Some people are more attracted to an Anglican way of worship. Some people are more attracted to a Roman Catholic means of worship. And yes, there are theological differences, but the differences are not the same thing as divisions. I think of that great hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, that speaks of the charge that we have as Christians to go out in the world and proclaim Jesus Christ as master. There is a line in it that goes this way. We are not divided. All one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in purity. Well, is that really the way that it is? So often, the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And Paul was acknowledging that. But what is interesting is that while Paul is acknowledging the fact that, yes, there were divisions in the church, yes, he was suffering, again, he insists God is still at work even in the suffering. God, in fact, is even using the troublemakers, he said. Are you aware of the fact that God can even use troublemakers for good? Well, he did. Paul says these people were competing with Paul. They were competing with him to preach the gospel. They wanted to do it better than Paul did. They wanted more praise than Paul was getting. And so they were out there and they were preaching the gospel. They were preaching Christ. They were doing it out of envy and out of rivalry. But Paul says, whether they're preaching it out of envy, out of rivalry, or out of goodwill, it makes no difference. The good news is what? Christ is being proclaimed. Now, that's not to suggest that God is necessarily going to bless rivalry or envy. These sorts of things will produce a poison fruit in any congregation. But what he is saying is that despite man's best efforts, the word of God will not be contained. It will go forth, and it will make a difference in the world. If you're a Christian, that is a great encouragement, my friends, to know that God is at work even in the bleakest of circumstances. Even in a church that is rent by division and strife, God is still at work. And it's our responsibility as Christians to be peacemakers in those circumstances. And that's what Paul was. His hope in Christ never failed. He was not, he said, disappointed. Let's pick up the narrative at verse 18. And 19. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, there's a great deal that's happening to me here, but what I know without a doubt is that I will not at all be ashamed. When we think of the word ashamed, we think of a sense of guilt or shame that comes as a result of having done something that we shouldn't have. 
When the Bible speaks of being ashamed, that's not what it means. The Bible means disappointment. When Paul says, I am confident that I will not be at all ashamed, what he really means is he is confident that he will not be at all disappointed. No matter how this turns out, he's saying, you can rest assured, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi, that I'm not going to be disappointed because I know God is at work. He's at work even here in the rivalry and the strife with these other Christians. He's at work even though I am chained. The gospel's going out through the Praetorian Guard. I know this much. There are many things I don't know, but this much I know. I will not be disappointed. Now, that's an extraordinary thing to say because most of us are disappointed. There's not a period in life when you are not going to be disappointed. Children are disappointed on Christmas morning when they don't get what they want, aren't they? Teenagers are disappointed when they're sometimes excluded from a particular group. Adults are frequently disappointed. Actually, the disappointments only get better and more frequent the older you get, bigger and more disappointing. Sometimes we're disappointed in our careers when we don't get to the top and we see people who are perhaps less talented than we are getting promoted. We're sometimes disappointed in our children because they don't turn out the way we had hoped. They don't do the things we had hoped. They don't marry the kind of people that we were hoping they would marry. Sometimes children are disappointed with their parents, the way that their, children raise, their parents raise them, the restrictions that they put on them. Some people are disappointed in love. They never find that person that God had intended for them, or they think God had intended for them. We are frequently disappointed. But look at what Paul says here in Philippians. In spite of his circumstances, he knows with confidence that he will not be disappointed. Now, Paul's not naive. He doesn't mean that other people are not going to disappoint him. He's already talked about the fact that there were some who were competing with him, who were rivals to him. What Paul means is that God is not going to disappoint him. And that's something that you and I need to hold fast to. There will be people, there will be circumstances in life that will disappoint us, but God will not disappoint us. When Paul thinks of God not disappointing him, he really thinks of three areas. And these are three areas that you and I need to focus on as well. First of all, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he will not be disappointed in the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and it's the same word there. He is not ashamed. He is not disappointed by the gospel. He says, because it is the power of salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul was not disappointed in the message that he had to proclaim. I think this is one of the things that's so fascinating about Paul. If there is one problem in the evangelical conservative wing of the church today, it is not a lack of confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. It is a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of the Bible to do the work. We always feel that we need to add something to the gospel. Oh, yes, the gospel is the gospel, but we need to add something to it in order to make it effective in this culture. Paul was not ashamed of the message of Jesus Christ. He didn't feel the need to add anything to it or detract anything from it. He simply went out and preached the gospel. Here's another quote by Spurgeon. Spurgeon once said that the Bible is like a lion. He said, you don't have to defend a lion. The only thing you have to do is open the cage and let it out. And that is exactly how Paul felt about the gospel. He knew that wherever he preached the gospel, people from every background, every culture, found their lives transformed, their minds renewed, their hearts warmed. And it didn't matter if they were Jews, it didn't matter if they were Gentiles, it didn't matter if they were rich or poor, educated or ignorant, the gospel had the power to save everyone, from the guttermost to the uttermost. And so Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and you and I don't need to be ashamed of the gospel either. We're living in a time in which many people are. You'll be mocked, you'll be ridiculed for your belief in the gospel. But Paul says, well, it's a stumbling block to some and an offense to others. We know that it is the power of God to salvation. And so he said, I'm not going to be disappointed in the gospel. The word of the Lord will go forth and it will prosper 
and fulfill God's plans for it. Here's the second thing Paul was not ashamed of. The fact that he had entrusted his life to God. His life, his present, his future, all of eternity had been entrusted. Here's how he describes it in 2 Timothy. Turn if you want to 2 Timothy. It's Paul's last letter, which makes it particularly poignant. And some have described it as Paul's last will and testament. And he's writing to his young protege, Timothy. Paul, at this point, is in his second imprisonment in Rome. He's going to be executed by order of the emperor. He's going to be taken out along the Ostian Way and beheaded. And he knows it's coming. He knows that there's a great purge taking place in the Roman Empire, and he knows that he's next on the list. He's not going to escape. He escaped this first imprisonment, although he didn't know it at the time that he wrote the letter to the Philippians. He escaped it, but he would not escape the second one, and he knew it. He could sense it. The sword of Damocles was hanging over his head, and yet he writes this second letter to Timothy to pass the torch, as it will, to this young man to carry on his work in the world. And here's what he says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel is the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immorality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But here's the critical verse. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Take out that word ashamed, replace it with the word disappointed. I am not disappointed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul had put his life on deposit with God. And regardless of what was happening to him, regardless of the fact that he was suffering for the sake of the gospel, in spite of the fact that he knew he would not escape this imprisonment there in that Mamertine jail, that miserable rat-infested hole, Paul nevertheless was confident that what he had entrusted to God, God would keep until that last day. And here's the third reason why Paul was not ashamed. He knew that God was going to be honored no matter what. That's what he's saying here in today's passage. In verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, you might think that Paul is thinking, well, deliverance. He thinks he's going to get out. But he doesn't say that. Verse 20 as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, translate disappointed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul was not disappointed in God because despite man's best efforts, despite the best efforts of those of who are his rivals, Paul knew that the gospel was the power to salvation they entrusted his life to God, and God was going to keep that safe and secure until that last day when he received that crown of victory. And he knew that whether by his life or by his death, Christ was going to be honored in him. For me to live is Christ, he says in the next verse, and to die is gain. What a word of encouragement. What a word of confidence. What a word of hopefulness. Paul had discovered the secret to being content in every and any circumstance. Have you discovered that secret? Can you say that in your life or in your death, all you want is for Christ to be honored? Can you say that you will not be ashamed because you know you have entrusted your very soul to God and he will keep that? He will keep it safe until that last great day. Can you say in the midst of a world that ridicules everything that is noble, lovely, and pure, that you are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power unto salvation? Paul could. And that's what gave him hope. That's what gave him joy. 
even in the bleakest of circumstances. May the same be true for us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Paul. We see him here in a situation that was uncharacteristic for such an active man. Most of the time we see Paul out preaching, teaching, debating, but here he is locked away in fetters, and yet still sharing the good news, still shining the light of Christ even in that dark prison, seizing every opportunity and rejoicing that whether by life or by death, Christ was going to be honored. Paul's theme was, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. May the same be true for us. Have thine own way, Lord. Thou art the potter, we are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you very much. It's good to see you all this week. I hope to see you around campus, and if not, I hope to see you virtually next week here on Thursday's Bible study. Take care. Have a great day.